Hi everyone, Lucas Werner here. If you've been enjoying these conversations with artists, I invite you to come visit David's Werner Gallery exhibitions in person. We're located in New York, Los Angeles, London, Paris, and Hong Kong. New exhibitions open each month. Plan your visit at davidswerner.com. Hi, I'm Peter Cole, and I'm a poet and a translator. I'm Marjorie Prowoff, and I'm a, an, a scholar and a critic. From David's Werner, this is Dialogues, a podcast about artists and the way they think. So I remember standing in the um, archaeological museum in Madrid, and suddenly I found myself in front of a kind of beaker, just a glass beaker, and the light was coming through it, and it was exquisite. It was so powerful an experience just seeing this. Granted, it was a, a luxury object, but still, I saw that. Ah, now I understand how to translate that poem. So I think it's a dual process. I don't know that I've gotten so much that the visual arts have helped me with poetry as both together are so important. I'm Lucas Werner, and every episode features a conversation. We're taking artists, writers, philosophers, designers, and musicians, and putting them in conversation with each other to explore what it means to make things today. Hi, it's Lucas Werner. I hope you've been enjoying the recent episodes hosted by Helen Molesworth as much as I have. I'm making a brief return to the Dialogues feed for a fascinating conversation with Peter Cole and Marjorie Perloff. Peter is a MacArthur Award-winning poet and translator, someone I've known and learned from for a long time since he was my professor at Yale and has remained a friend ever since. And Marjorie is a critic and scholar of avant-garde poetry, someone with exceptional knowledge and urgent thoughts on the state of poetry right now. They're both invested in contemporary art and its long-standing relationship to poetic language, so we got together to talk on the occasion of Peter's brand new book of verse called Draw Me After. It features work by the artist Terry Winters and poems inspired by the likes of Agnes Martin. At its core, it's a book about the expression of embodied experiences with art, that intimate and essential partnership between what we see and what we say. Hi, Peter. Hi, Marjorie. Hi, Lucas. Hi, Lucas. Just to kind of situate us, um, Peter, I thought that you might introduce your forthcoming book. So the book is called Draw Me After, and it has a uh, drawing of, by Terry Winters on the cover. And so it would be natural and a, and a long poem about Terry Winters' drawings in there. And there are also um, poems about work by Agnes Martin mm-hmm. and uh, Joel Shapiro and sculptures in particular, but some of his prints, installations. And so it would be natural to assume that um, it was a kind of ekphrastic book. But it's a little more complicated than that and a little deceptive, I think, in that the phrase, uh, the title Draw Me After actually comes from the Song of Songs. Hmm. Although these days, you know, you can't assume that anybody will will recognize that. Um, But in the Song of Songs, it is um, in the opening, the first chapter of the Song of Songs, the female figure, this is already like verse, chapter one, verse four. So it's right at the very, very beginning. The female figure says to this mysterious male um, lover who has appeared, but we don't really know where he is or what he is or who he is. 
says, draw me after you, let us run. It's this kind of erotic invitation. So it can be taken in the history of Bible, just as this is a, a love poem, probably the most famous love poem in, in certainly in Western civilization, maybe in the world today. But what I did with it is I took an epigraph from the primary Kabbalistic text, the Zohar, which serves as a kind of wild, sometimes hallucinatory, supercharged, imaginative commentary on the Bible. And on this particular verse of Song of Songs, it says, it says that uh, the le- all the letters called saying, draw me after you, let us run. Yeah. All the letters called saying, draw me after you, let us run. In other words, the writers of this book of the Zohar understood this, to, this kind of figure of desire to be referring to the letters of the Hebrew alphabet which is such an incredibly just, I find that amazingly attractive as a writer and, mm-hmm. and compelling. It fits into a whole larger Kabbalistic matrix. But the book is really about that kind of desire and that kind of attraction and that kind of affinity. Affinity with certain visual artists only being one case in point and with not just the artist, but obviously uh, with their works. Um, so there's the question of where does affinity begin? You know, how did this come to be? Um, I think it takes me a lot. When I start out with a, writing a book of poetry, I don't know that I'm writing a book of poetry. I'm just writing poems. Um, and in this case, I think one of the earliest poems was, was the, the series for Terry Winters' work. And that came with, uh, from an invitation or it's actually even before the invitation, 2014, I published a book with new directions called The Invention of Influence. Um, long poem there about a maverick disciple of Freud, doesn't really matter. But um, I finished the book and getting near uh, production. And of course, you what do you do? You look for a cover image. And I didn't have anything in mind. And so I began Googling and typing in keywords and Within a very, very short time, and maybe even I put in The Invention of Influence, which is the title of an essay by this maverick disciple of Freud. Within a very short time, up popped this picture, this print that turned out to be by Terry Winters. I had known of Terry's work, but I didn't know Terry. And it just totally kind of knocked my psychic socks off. It was, has he read this book already? I mean, how is it possible that he was reading my mind with this the print, which was called Bomb. I have to ask, Peter, uh, what about that? What I mean, it's a kind of a powerful thing to say that a print feels like it's reading your mind, right? Looks like, at first glance, for I think a normal person, the ordinary reader or viewer, it would look like molecules under a atom, molecules under a microscope, or even a kind of subatomic. Um, representation of what's happening with, with particles, something yeah. out of higher physics. Yeah. But for me, it looked like a straight Kabbalistic diagram, like right out of, there are many medieval Kabbalistic diagrams. And the people have written, people have written books about the connection between advanced physics and Kabbalah. So it's not unusual, but it, I thought, does he know this kind of stuff? Because there was still already a lot of Kabbalistic stuff in my work, sort of in the background of my work. Anyway, I wrote to him, um, wrote him a note. He was incredibly gracious. 
said I could use it. He was very happy about that. Um, we struck up a friendship. And a couple of years later, he wrote asking me, um, you know, I could send him, he said he was, there was an essay of mine he wanted to read. He couldn't find it anywhere. And could I send it to him? And it was actually the first critical, literary critical essay I had ever published. It was in my mid-20s. And it was on Mark Rothko and Barnett Newman and the poets Louis Zukowski and George Oppen. And I was using the, po the, the paintings to read the poems in a way and vice versa. And he, I sent it to him. I said, a little embarrassing. It's the first thing I ever published. But I looked at it. It seemed like it held up. So he read it. And then he invited me to write something. He said, I'm having a drawing, a big show at the Drawing Center in New York. Um, would you be willing to write something for the catalog? And so I said, yes, yeah, sure. Let's, let's look at some drawings. And I didn't know it would be an essay, it would be a poem. And when I, so I went out to his studio in Hudson Valley and looked at a lot of drawings, I spent the day with him and his wife. And the drawings just totally appealed to me. I mean, real deep affinity. And I said, absolutely. And it was also very clear to me that this would be a poem. Yeah. And so it took a while, but gradually I lived with these drawings and reproductions of them and, and wrote that poem. And it evolved from there. And then suddenly I saw that, huh, I actually have other things like this. The Agnes Martin show was around mm -hmm. that time right. at the Guggenheim. Yeah. And little by little, it began to form itself. There's also poems in the book about Hebrew letters. Yes. I just I just mentioned the... A quote from the Zohar, looking at the Hebrew letters as glyphs, as objects to be responded to and to be called into relation, which is something that I've had since I was a child. I had a somewhat traditional um, Jewish education, at least at the first 10 years, 13 years of my life. Um, and I had wanted for years to write about the Hebrew letters and sort of the, the thrill I get from them. And I wondered... Could I, could I do that in English? Or is that something that's not available to an English reader? So it was a kind of experiment that I set for myself. Anyway, in a nutshell, there's other poems too, sort of more conventional lyrics in some ways, but um, that's how the whole project began. And it grew organically. There is a real kind of dream logic to the way the book took shape and it quite a while for that um, shape to assert itself. I'm curious, Marjorie, what drew you I mean, to this book in particular, I haven't read the blurb that you wrote for the book, but it sounds like it's a very beautiful uh, response that you had. And, and maybe to, to Peter's work more generally, you know, sort of like having heard the inside take, as it were, yeah. what, is, what is the outside take? Letters are so wonderful, those letter poems, but I don't know the Hebrew letters. I don't know a word of Hebrew. So, so that is a very strange thing that makes the whole book strange. But I especially love these letter poems because what, so the audience, what Peter does is, let's say, Gimel. Gimel is third, and like a camel kicks its neck out for a thing as though on a limb bearing a burden. And it is a kind of ekphrasis, you know, making a picture out of it. But they, they're so suggestive, these letters. And I love that kind of thing. But you asked what drew me originally to the book. Um, and what did is that I, I think this is just my idea. I, I think most poetry today that's written isn't poetry at all. It's nothing. It's not poetry. It's free verse. Free verse is now more than 100 years old. We've had free verse ever since Whitman. And the great master of free verse at the beginning of the century was Ezra Pound. And Williams was another one, William Carlos Williams. And free verse 
isn't just free. You have to do something with the lines. And we now more and more have poetry. Pick up any magazine, a poetry magazine, and the poetry is just prose. It's just cut up prose. I was walking down the street and I said, really? You know, it's not, it's not condensed. Nothing is done. And what Peter is one of the few poets and really one of the few, and that attracted me, that the music of these poems is just wonderful. And everything is how the sounds are related. And uh, quite amazing, really, how in that next slide, Gimbel's of goodness actually doing something and going, where going leads back to Gimbel's goodness. And you can figure out, you know, how that works. And he's really aware of the visual in relation to, you know, drawing on the draw me after. The visual is important, also very important, but the sound is just as important. So you get a kind of, you know, what Joyce called verbi voco visual. And that to me is very important. And to me, without that, you don't really have much poetry today. There isn't much poetry written because I don't understand what makes them think they're writing poetry. But just because you lineate it doesn't make something poetry. I mean, that would be very nice, you know, but um, anybody can do it, really. Or you get a lot of so-called sonnets written today now that are only sonnets because they have 14 lines. Well, anybody can write something that has 14 lines. You know, they're not really sonnets. They don't have the rhyme scheme. They don't have the meter. So I'm getting to the point where I wish people would start using meter again, and it wouldn't, of course, be the same as it once was. But on the other hand, this kind of attitude that just anything, it's the little insight, you know, is a poem is, uh, I think, I think a real, I don't know whether you feel that way too many, but I think it's a real problem. And so I was very thrilled to, to read these poems that take whatever they start with the, the, on the, the different pages. I've had Agnes Martin and go with it and run with it, both visual and bring in the Zohar, all these things, both visually and sonically. Very important. And so if you look at it, or I hope Peter will read some of them out loud. Um, so, and so the audience can hear that and hear what is done with sound. Well, Marjorie, there's something, you know, what you're just describing in terms of the, the matrix or the network of sound, of course, is exactly what you're doing in, in for thin. Uh, your new book and right, studying micropoetics. And um, by the same token, there are many critics who are reading um, poems with, you know, you, what do you call it? Super close reading of, of exactly that, um, that verbi vocal visual, that, that meeting of the three senses, those three senses or those three dimensions. Um, and that's a critical thing for me. That's, you know, well, the book is, in a way, is not really so much about ekphrasis as it is about intermediality. Yeah. All the different media coming together or different media meeting in different ways and different permutations. And you quote, um, in the, in, in Infrathen, you quote, uh, Victor Sklavsky's, uh, I think quoting Tolstoy talking about the, uh, the beautiful labyrinth of linkages. That's mm -hmm. what art, labyrinth of linkages. And that's what that poetry exactly is. Exactly defines what I'm yeah. trying that to is create. what poetry is a labyrinth of linkages and of course it's always been that really and it's like this is just something that has happened in recent years it used to be you know big arguments about do people use meter or free verse those arguments are over but as say you just see things where people have not only don't they pay attention to the sound but it's if they purposely make it you know make it uninteresting but uh, uh, for instance in a poem by yours of uh, yours 
Kent, this is on page 41, that God and good as English words rub elbows, shoulders, and though less likely far more private parts, is something oddly absent and at once a given. Just listen to that. The relation of the age, but the God and good, what poetry is, is the poet is the, is the person who sees those relationships that ordinary people don't see, that most people just read on and they don't see it. And the, so these poems are very highly wrought. I would say he really didn't even need the, you know, they are drawing after, but um, um, I would say from where I see it, just to be, just to be controversial, that I don't even think you need the artist, particularly because you, you're the artist, you know, you do it really almost without him. What Marjorie just said there is interesting in the sense of it's a, it's a kind of translational um, relation. And that's a kind of question of, does the original need to be nearby? Right. Like when you're reading a translation or does the translation stand on its own? Right. And I actually do believe that the translation stands, has to stand on its own. I don't. You know, uh, well, I mean, you're, it's funny, of course, in your Wittgenstein notebooks, you have side-by-side text, Marjorie, you have German and English, right? So that was a deliberate. Well, I felt it really is, ger- you know, after all, sure. really in German. So the text should be there. I also was hoping it would be for German readers. There's no German edition. So I thought that'd be nice. But I, all I meant was that the Terry, it's very nice. And that obviously inspired you in part. Those wonderful drawings by Terry Woodard, they're really great. But you didn't even totally need them because it's really your poem and your visualization. And if you had told me they were based on, let me think of another artist. I suppose if you told me they were based on side Twombly or something, yeah, I might have accepted that too. You could have made a case for it. You see what I mean? In other words, people say, I'm, I'm basing this on this and this artist. I think this is true in general. They may think they're basing it on that artist that may inspire them originally, but in the end, it doesn't really, it doesn't really matter that much. Mm-hmm. Both of you mention and rely on artists. The title of your book, Inferthin, right? Comes from a Duchamp, it's a Duchampian yeah. word. So I, I want to get to that. But um, I just wanted to stick with translation for a second because your approach to poetry, Peter, does feel, um, you know, we've been using this word ekphrastic, you know, to mean the description of, it's called visual information or visual art. But it seems, if we hear what Marjorie is saying, very sort of sense-oriented, right, in, in, all, in all aspects of the senses. And I was wondering if that has something to do with your practice as a translator. It does. I mean, you just said it does to some degree, but really specifically as a translator of medieval Hebrew and Arabic. For me, what I want from translation, certainly for my own translations, I want embodied translation. I want translation that comes from the inside. So for example, when I'm looking at Terry's drawings or Agnes Martin or any of the the things or the Hebrew letter, I'm not trying, you know, so we talk about ekphrasis as being, as describing something. But to describe can also be to trace a gesture. It's not just to explain with words what, you're, what you see, right? It's also to actually get inside and make the gesture and you know, trace, a, trace a, a circle or an arc. That's also what describe means. And so I'm trying to, to the extent that I can, take on the kind of drama of materials that I'm perceiving in the work, in the individual work. And when it came to the medieval poetry, uh, so that's poetry, that's Hebrew poetry, very Arabized Hebrew poetry 
that was written in Andalusia, Andalusia, 10th to 12th century, southern Spain, occupied, um, ruled by the Muslims, a tremendously advanced civilization. While most of Europe is in the Dark Ages, you have just incredibly sophisticated things going on at Cordoba and Granada and Seville. And it's been, a, it was always a poetry that was very difficult to bring into English. Um, and the thing that unlocked that poetry for me as a translator, there were two things really. One was reading art critic, art historians about Islamic art. Wow. They, they wrote so beautifully. And it was because the aesthetic that these Hebrew poets are writing on, their, Arabic was their mother tongue. They're living in, you can go to the Alhambra and you can see sort of later um, material evidence of that culture. We don't have a whole lot from the 10th century, but you can, you can get an idea what that aesthetic was like. They wrote so beautifully and so convincingly about um, the kind of that sort of labyrinth of linkage that I perceived in the Hebrew poetry, but they wrote about it in relation to Islamic art. And, and that gave me a vocabulary and a kind of confidence to say, yes, that's what's going on in this aesthetic, in this culture. You find it in Iranian art also. Um, that was one thing. And then I remember there's a famous poem there's a lot of poems about uh, drinking wine and sort of pretty boys and girls. And it's easy to, to poo-poo those poems and say, well, they're just conventional. But Marjorie, I know you like soap operas. Soap operas are conventional. <laughs> they give a lot of pleasure, right? They give a lot of pleasure. And, and, and Hollywood movies from the 30s and 40s are very conventional and also a kind of deep art. In other words, convention is not a bad thing. It has to be, has to be animated. So I remember standing in the um, archaeological museum in Madrid. This was be 1990, I don't know, the mid-90s, something like that, early 90s, probably even the early 90s. And suddenly I found myself in front of a kind of beaker, just a glass beaker. And the light was coming through it, and it was exquisite. It was so powerful an experience, just seeing this. Granted, it was a, a luxury object, but still it was a, I saw that. I said, ah, now I understand how to translate that poem. That's the effect of looking at this thing. It's a similar effect to what I'm feeling in the poetry. And so now I need to find a way in words to recreate that effect or come up with something analogous to it. And, and I, I had the good fortune because, um, of reviewing Peter's book. This is back in 2007 for book form, The Dream of the Poem. The heat quotes poetry, and I was just knocked out by it because, well, first of all, all the different forms, the different poetic forms that he deals with, and they love poems, and many of them are very sexy, some of them are very funny, and they're comparable to Provencal poetry, same, and so on. And, and one of the interesting things is that the Ulipo poets in Paris, in France, who I always liked a lot, uh, and Jacques Roubault, one of my favorites, who's quite brilliant in talking about poetry too has a book called, I don't know if you've ever seen this, Peter, The Death of Alexander. Have you ever seen that? I've not seen, I've seen a lot of his work, but not that one. La mort d'Alexandre. And the death of Alexander means the death of the Alexandrin. And in Oxford, France, about the Alexandrin had such a hold, the 12 line, the 12 syllable line with the break in the middle, and it had such strict rules. And the death of Alexander was the death of that form. It happened with Rimbaud really after Baudelaire, it happened with prose poetry, and then it happened with Rimbaud. And um, 
but he talked a lot about how what the early Provencal forms were like. And they're so brilliant. You know, these love poems, and they're very sad pieces in a way, but they do amazing things because they're the ultimate poems, I say really formally perfect, that, that manage to do very witty things and with puns and with things like that. So I thought the, the, the Hebrew poetry was quite similar. And obviously that has influenced Peter both consciously and unconsciously. Once you can have translated that poetry, which must have been very difficult, and he and he's done it over the years so wonderfully. It has influenced his poetry, so he's able to do things that other people aren't really in a way because he has that feel for what you can do with strict rules. Actually, and it's also important to when we think of these. Marjorie mentioned the Provencal poets. The so we're talking now about you know just a little bit before that, but these poets were. What, the way I think of them is as a classicizing avant-garde. They were doing something completely new in Hebrew poetry and scandalous, but it was very much kind of with a turn to the past. I was going to kind of ask, we, having heard you speak a little bit about art, Peter, I wanted to ask Marjorie also, uh, come back to that earlier question, how, what art has done for you in terms of your thinking about, let's say, poetry and philosophy, right? And I asked that specifically, I think, because of something, because of the artists that each of you have mentioned, but this idea of being forced to bring something from one sensory domain into another sensory domain is, of course, something that forces you to be inventive in the target language, as it were. Well, if you go back to Pater and the idea that all arts approach the condition of music, today they more, they don't, they more of the visual arts, probably. I can, when I first wrote my book, The Futurist Moment, where the things were mostly artworks, but the and the verbal things came right in. It's because it's because the visual arts at that point, it depends what time in history, are more advanced. That isn't always true, but it's still true to some degree today. So, for instance, I've done a lot of work on on a Frank O'Hara and Jasper Johns, in terms of artworks. Now, what what did well, and, and then to look and see what Jasper Johns could do himself with some of the things and works both ways, of course, that Frank O'Hara had given him. So in memory of my feelings and you get all the allusions and references to. So I think it's a dual process. I don't know that I've gotten so much that the visual arts have helped me with poetry as both together are so important. And why would one want to, I mean, anything, dance would be important, music would be important, but I'm, I don't know enough about music. I've worked a lot with Cage, but I don't really know enough about music to talk about that well. But I guess what I feel is that beginning in the early 20th century and still today, you can't really separate the arts that much. So you have things that work together. And if you limit that and don't do that, it, it's much more limiting. But if we take that word ekphrasis, I did say in my blurb, Peter's the ultimate ekphrastic poem. And then I said to him, I don't really like the word ekphrasis, which must have seemed strange to you. But I guess what I mean by that is most ekphrasis, again, most of the time when somebody takes a painting and then tries to write a poem, that's the counterpart. It's really awful. I mean, it's so what? So what? You know, it gives you a so what feeling. What's what's the point? Uh, what is it doing anything really for the painting or isn't it just a prop? Or isn't the painting just a prop that they could just as well have done something else? So actually, I don't always like the idea of ekphrasis. It can become that. I think a more fruitful way to think of, of Peter's poems, although I, I did 
did use the word ekphrasis is that um, the way, for instance, a small thing like a letter, the way those letter poems could stimulate him to think of all these things that that do come out of a letter, and it does look like that. Gimel the third, it does the pack of camel sticking its neck out for a thing you so on a limb. And once you see that, it becomes more and more interesting so that it prompts the imagination to work with the visual arts. I wouldn't say that had to be the case. It would all depend, you know, what it was. And um, I, I don't really know what more to say about that except for art. Let me say, let me say this. It all depends on the poet. Since I did a book on Frank O'Hara, he was somebody who was obviously very influenced by the visual. He's a curator. He works with that all the time. And I've just written a review of the new biography of David Smith by Michael Brenson, which has just come out from Farrar Strauss. And um, Frank O'Hara wrote a wonderful thing about David Smith, where looking at the sculptures at, at Bolton Landing outdoors, he said, they make you feel you don't want to have one, you want to be one. You want to be one of those sculptures. And what a wonderful thing to say. They're completely abstract and geometrical, but they do look like people. And he said they look like people wanting to come to a party. Well, so you can say he profited enormously in his work from the visual. John Ashbery, I don't think, has a visual imagination much at all. You know, and there were all these things written because he was also an art critic. Critic, yeah. This week. All right. And so we make all this fuss about it, but I think that's kind of a myth. Um, his is much more cerebral. The links are literary. The links are very literary. Sean Ashbery is a very literary poet who learned a lot from everybody, from Marvell or medieval poets on down. And opera is a big thing for him. And so you get those references. And I don't think he's an interesting, I don't think he's interesting visually particularly. So... It goes case by case, I guess. And um, it all depends what you are, what the, what the poet is stimulated by and brings up these things. So I will never look at those Smith sculptures again and think, you know, otherwise that, yeah, I'd like to be one, not have one, but be one. And um, because it was such an odd thing to say. When I say, I don't know, maybe you can give me a counter example, but it was funny because, because Ashbury and he needed the money. And because he worked as an art critic, everybody thought, ah, and then we have self-portrait in a convex mirror, which has been called an ekphrastic poem uh -huh. because of the Parmigiano. I was just in Vienna recently, and I saw that Parmigiano. It's in a side aisle. It's a very small painting, wonderful painting. And um, the first line of the Ashbury begins, as Parmigiano did it, you know, so on. You go on, frankly, you know, it gets further and further away from the painting. I don't think it has anything in common. But, you know, it's interesting you say that because, of course, I, I feel like the most famous probably example of ekphrastic writing that gets taught is the Shield of Achilles. Shield of Achilles. Shield of Achilles is, of course, an imagined object. It's a literary object, right? It's not like there's some or shield, you know, that, that was being described. It's a poetic piece of art, right? It's a piece of art that's created, invented in poetry. So at its very root, I think that kind of descriptive, visual descriptive writing has a degree of invention as part of it, right? It's sort of like part Absolutely. of the DNA Absolutely. of that kind of writing. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, the visual object becomes a kind of um, a catalyst or irritant, right? It's, it's, there's almost something arbitrary about it, but it, it happens to be one that stuck with you. I wanted to say something about what Marjorie said, that her relationship to the word, you know, ekphrastic in the sort of general sinking sense of, um, and I don't really like ekphrastic. So, I feel the same way. And it's like when someone says to you, 
hey, I just wrote a historical novel. Would you read it? You know, your heart sings. Or if you publish your, it's really not what you want them to be proposing to you. And it's the same thing when someone, you lay on your friend, um, hey, I just wrote a book of acrostic poems. Want to see? It's like, ah, because I think the implicit assumption is that there's going to be some sort of static standoff. Right. right. There's something right. inert about the, the poem in relation that came after, drove me after. It's just, it's just something just n- not animated, not alive. And so, and the truth is that I read, I've read the literature on ekphrastic, the sort of traditional things about the, the shield. And it didn't really, you know, flow, flow my boat. Exactly. Right, sure. Um, sure. Whereas looking at these works of art, did it's the most exciting it's as exciting as anything that could happen to you and to account for that on sensory term in sensory terms that's that's what it was really all about so that, it also goes back to the whole classicizing avant-garde i have a habit of i like you know we, marjorie is a, a, one of the great authorities on um avant-garde poetry and uh, sort of what we call experimental poetry and I think of these poems as real experiments. I'm going to try to apply translational technique to, to this thing. Or, or um, that I used to, couplets, for example, rhymed couplets. You know, I came out, I sort of cut my teeth on the Pound-Williams line. I'm from Patterson. Williams is one of my gods. Pound's ear, you know, is the greatest ear after Shakespeare's environment. Um, rhymed couplets are not what you're supposed to do. But Robert Creeley said form should never be more than an extension of content. But sometimes if the content varies, so then the form should vary. And sometimes it seems like a rhyme couplet might actually be the right form for a given experience or digestion of experience. So I've written in those things, which got some of my friends very upset. Like, what are you doing? What's happening? It's not like I started wearing a bow tie. It's just... This was an exciting thing to do. This is one of the possibilities. And I think that's what real experimentalism is. When you actually don't know what's going to happen. You have a hypothesis, you try something out, and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. Peter, I think your, your Agnes Martin poem, which is one of the most beautiful ones, look again. One, there also is the critical faculty. We haven't talked about that in the poem. I mean, I really thought it's very hard to capture Agnes Martin. After all, superficially, it looks like nothing. You know, lines across the page, gray lines, they vary, they vary slightly, but, but many people would say, what is that really? And, and when, he, when Peter gives a, the second stanza, there's just every possible music there between those lines, between these lines, drawn in grays against the gray to graze the light that's there in beiges. Now, the next time I ever go back and see an Agnes Martin, that is such a perfect description. That is an expression of, if you want to call that expression, okay, you know, that goes on in, in, in the painting, the slight change, the slightest alteration, and then the gray grazes the light, and you have that very slight change, absolutely captures, I think, what she does. So there's an instance that, um, well, if I suppose I had never seen an Agnes Martin and I read this poem, um, would it still be as good? Well, it would still be very good, but it wouldn't be quite as good as if you know. Uh, it's another question about translation. Do we need the other one, you know, there? Do we need to know the painting in order to appreciate what you've done with Agnes Martin? Not totally, but it certainly helps. And, and it's a wonderful thing 
and um, and the way Peter in that poem has captured her whole sense of things and those very very slight changes. And so I guess it isn't crisis. I don't quite even though I used it myself. I don't like to use the word because, as you say about the shield of Achilles, it always makes it seem slightly less good than somebody who I don't know. You know, it's their imagination and they're creating it all. Whatever it is. A question of um, what happens if you know it's Agnes Martin or you don't is kind of interesting. It's like gets it touches on the dynamic of translation hoaxes. When you think translation hoaxes from Ossian and all kinds of things on, when something is presented as a translation of a long lost classic or something like that, and or it can be a contemporary kind of thing, the Hiroshima poet. And, um, it shows sort of the fissures start to open up. But when I first wrote that Agnes Martin poem, I did not have the dedication to Agnes Martin on it. I simply called it, I called it, I called it again for Agnes M. And I sent it to the literary imagination in the magazine that Rosanna Warren was editing. And she, and, and she loved the poem and, and accepted it. And then I asked her, I said, could you tell what that poem is about? And, and she said, well, I just assume it's a it's kind of composite of landscapes. And I said, oh, I said, good, good. That's interesting. No, but, but it worked. It worked for you as that. And then I said, actually, it's about Agnes Martin. And I thought, okay, I should, I should show my hand a little more because that adds a little more complication to it. But there is always that thing, like with translations, is the whole thing a hoax? Like translation is not the original. It's just not, you know, and something different. You know? I thought I, I definitely wanted to make some time, Peter, for you to read. I don't know if you have any in mind. Um, so I'll read the Agnes Martin poem? Or? Yes. It's called, just called Look Again for Agnes Martin. Is it stone? No, it's sky. And now it's sand or standing water or rippled under stippled clouds. Is that flowing water frame? Every possible music there between those lines between these lines dawning grays against the gray to graze the light that's there in beiges, faint blaze, ochre looming near a crushed eggshell blue come into sharper focus and viewed in the distance deep within. A field of wheat or grain blown back against the wind or berms of germs as grasses bloom beyond our looking, splitting arms of moments, making the darkness felt as velvet black opening into a soft distraction, a baby's breath of news arrived as what is near as what was far. And could it be her God's Excel file? These cells of pale pinks, a zone of anyone's truancy, purely sure and all alone. In the empty world is grid, the girded minds giving way to or away the girl within the self that's less and more at once and for it all such a patience, the slow sketch. It's a calling, being called like a coda code or small cubes, extended reach with smudges in each a spot of time, or maybe not so much as smudge as just a clear account of the blur, which isn't fuzzy in its off-center doings, slate against the graphite scale, as quiet score is auburn overscumbled gold in ivory lurking. It's an origin, 
It's an egg. It's an island. It's a friend and friendship's nimbus in the wavering margin waves, traveling light through rites like birth, as though it were saying, for all it's worth, look again and again look. That's the luck we lock ourselves out of. Beautiful. That's the only poem I think I ever started writing on my cell phone. Really? When I was at that Guggenheim show. Oh, wow. My wife at one point turned around and looked for me and I was gone and I was just up, still up at the top. And I just, I didn't, they wouldn't let you, you know, you can't take a pen and paper in. Right. But I had my phone and stuff was just, everything was happening. Watching that show was just, and so I began wow. picking it out on my phone and that would take a long time after that. That's wonderful. You know, on that beautiful note, I want to thank you both for making time today. Wonderful to see you both. and, and Wonderful. And thank you. you. Dialogues is produced by David Zwerner. You can find out more about the artists on this series by going to davidswerner.com slash dialogues. And if you liked what you heard, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It really does help other people discover the show. I'm Lucas Werner. Thanks so much for listening, and I hope you join us again next time.